Global Capital Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair and I'm the editor of Global Capital. And I'm John Hay, the Corporate Finance and Sustainability Editor. Now, coming up on this week's episode of the podcast, we talk to our loans reporter, Hannah Buttle, um, who's been reporting on a what could be a, a landmark sex discrimination case um, and that could really uh, have big, profound implications for not just pay equality, one hopes, but also transparency over pay in the city. Isn't that right, John? Yeah, it's a case of Stacey Macken, who sued BNP Paribas. And the the judgment uh, was actually two years ago in her favour. But um, the court has now decided uh, what the penalty for BNP Paribas should be. And so that is the thing that could have implications for a lot of firms. Yeah, so much more about that later. But first, uh, we'll talk about the uh, big things that have happened in the markets this week. And I wanted first to turn to what has to be the deal of the week and maybe even the year so far. Um, and that was for Turkey. Um, John, can you give us a little bit of background as to what's been going on with Turkey and capital markets? Because this is, of course, um, in the bond markets, Turkey is a sophisticated, well-respected borrower, but it's it's not had the easiest ride of late, has it? No. Well, the trouble is that uh, the president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, is, is, is on a sort of war against international capital markets uh, it, because he believes that they're sort of against Turkey. And particularly, he believes that um, inflation, which the country is suffering from very badly, I think it was 48% in January, um, is is actually made worse by raising interest rates, which is the opposite view to uh, most economists. And he's therefore forced the central bank to cut interest rates several times. Um, and, the, the you know, the, the country is now in a situation with rampant inflation. And obviously the bond market um, hates this. Uh, it's very worried. It, Turkey's going against all conventional uh, economic policy. And the the result is that Turkey has not been able to borrow uh, in international capital markets, or at least hasn't done so, so far this year. Normally, it comes out very early in January with a, with a substantial dollar bond to sort of kick off its funding for the year. And, um, and it stayed away this year, no doubt, uh, because it's been advised by bankers that it would have to pay an enormous amount to, to borrow. Yeah. And um, the, the interesting thing here is uh, no matter what hand the Turkish uh, debt management officials dealt, they seem to have played this one extremely well, haven't they? They bought a, um, a Sukuk deal uh, this, this week. And before we go into why that was such an impressive deal, um, we should probably explain what a Sukuk is. Yeah, so this is an, an, as a bond structured according to Islamic finance laws. Um, which means that it, it appeals to investors that specifically invest only in Islamic uh, instruments, and and you know there's there's a substantial market for that, particularly in uh, the Middle East um, and and Malaysia, and um, so you know th th there are sort of friendly investor base that that Turkey could turn to. 
Yeah, so just to set the scene, uh, Turkey has $11 billion of debt to raise from the international market this year. Um, now, someone that uh, our reporters, uh, George Collard and Francesca Young, uh, spoke to this week, said that they thought that Turkey could do a conventional bond in a size of about a billion dollars or so, um, but not as well as the deal that it did this week. Now, bear in mind, this is a smaller market. Turkey managed to do $3 billion, and it managed to attract 200 investors into this deal um, and build an order book of $10.75 billion, which is quite incredible. I mean, that's over a quarter of its funding done for the year, at possibly the most difficult point. Not not only uh, does Turkey have its own problems with inflation and persuading investors to, to, to buy its debt, um, but, you know, the wider market context is, um, is similarly volatile and, and difficult. Yeah. I mean, it really was one of those cases where and the actual execution of a bond really matters um, to, to actually to the country and its finances. And, you know, it, it does come down to the sort of technical things that bond professionals uh, interest themselves in, such as how to size the deal, when to time it, how to structure it, what, what type of deal to do and so on. It's a very, very successful exercise. And, and what was interesting as well is that in the run up to it, um, people were, you know, experts in emerging market debt were saying that they they thought, you know, Turkey would do this deal, but it would be priced wider than um, Turkey's normal ordinary bonds, right, at a higher interest rate. And this was because of the, the weak demand for Turkey and the generally unsettled market. Um, normally, uh, Sukuk can price more tightly because they are... Um, uh, you know, they have this extra Islamic demand. But but what happened on the day was that, you know, there was such intense demand that the bond was actually priced 15 basis points through the um, uh, the conventional curve, in other words, tighter, which is a tremendous result. Yeah, it's a curious feature of the market dynamics, isn't it? When you have a um, an undersupplied audience of investors, as you probably have in the Sukuk market. I think the signs were there, weren't they, that something might be possible. The week before, there were two um, local Middle Eastern banks that brought Sukuk to the market and paid no premium. Um, yeah. they, that is to say, they paid nothing over uh, their existing debt, which is not, not typically the case. And one of those deals was um, a quite a quite risky part of the capital structure. So you would certainly expect to have seen some premium there. So what it showed, I suppose, was that there was a, an audience of investors out there just dying for paper of some sort. And this deal achieved some sort of, um, what's the word I'm thinking of? Um, I don't know what the word is I'm thinking of, but it was an impressive piece of pricing. So not only did it come 15 basis points through its conventional debt, but what you have to bear in mind is that the Turkey Sukuk curve chases trades, sorry, 50 to 60 basis points tighter than its conventional debt. That's because Turkish Sukuk is a liquid. It's tightly held. It doesn't trade very much. It's hard to get hold of. So anyone buying the Sukuk was able to buy it at a premium to other Sukuk, other Turkish Sukuk. But um, yeah, still Turkey managed to achieve a better pricing for a deal three times the size it normally raises mm. um, in the conventional market. And it was also um, not not only the biggest uh, bond Turkey had ever issued, but the the second biggest Sukuk ever issued anywhere. Yeah, um, yeah, it's absolutely spectacular. Um, I th I think on one other point about that, maybe 
you know, there, there was also conventional investor demand for it. It wasn't just the Sukuk investors. And I think, um, you know, the, the appetite for Turkey may be partly due to the problems in Russia where um, the, you know, the, the, there's this horrible threat of a war uh, of Russia invading Ukraine. And, and that sort of creates a very nasty atmosphere around Russia. And I think, you know, compared with that, uh, you know, a bit of sort of monetary policy unorthodoxy in Turkey is probably sort of not too much of a worry for, for EM investors. Well, at least you're only going to be penalised financially if you get it wrong on Turkey. If, you know, if you end up buying yeah. um, Russian credit and then you find yourself subject to sanctions, then yeah. uh, not only are you financially yeah. screwed, but you could end up in a bit of legal bother too. Um, so that's, that possibly explains that. Um, now, um, John, um, speaking of governments raising money, um, there's, there's some fears brewing in the Eurozone, aren't there, about uh, about mm. what might happen to uh, countries such as Spain and Italy, which have huge borrowing needs. Yeah. Um, and of course, Greece, which is has less of a borrowing need, but uh, is, is, as we know from the last decade or so, has uh, found itself at times frozen out of capital markets. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a really major story. And, and, and it's sort of, you know, it's going to be a defining thing this year, and perhaps beyond, I think. Um, you, you know, ever since uh, the crash of Lehman, we've had central banks, uh, basically supporting the bond market, and, um, you know, helping those those with big borrowing needs which which in europe among the governments is above all italy uh, and to a lesser extent spain and 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 greece but um the and and, and specifically since the the italian debt crisis um it, 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 in about 2011 um the, the central bank has been supporting the market and trying to bring down uh the the spread between Italian government bonds, BTPs, and the German Bund. Um, and, and that spread is, is an indicator of, of essentially the funding viability of Italy with its enormous debt load. And so, but the central bank uh, now has faces the problem of having to control inflation, um, which is really from being sort of a rock bottom. And a few years ago, the ECB was desperately trying to generate some inflation in Europe. Mm. It, it's, now, it's now got to try and bring it down. Yeah, that's right. And um, of course, that support that the ECB provided uh, under the public sector purchase program, as it's known, um, it then had to provide extra support during the pandemic, didn't it? When uh, when borrowing programs at uh, various governments increased to meet government spending to combat the effects of the pandemic. And, and so the uh, ECB invented the 1.85 trillion euro pandemic emergency purchase program. Now, of course, that program ends in March anyway. And so this has been a topic on the podcast before. And it's certainly obviously a topic in government bond markets about what what happens once that ends. Um, not least because uh, just to focus on Greek debt for a minute, Greece is not eligible to be purchased under the other programs because its credit rating is too low. So it raises the question of how will Greek yields be managed by the ECB? Um, and then obviously, yes, the wider question about Italy and so on. Um, this, this not only are yields rising in the government bond market in expectation of uh, higher interest in the future, but of course, the spreads of those those countries uh, with those big borrowing programs mm -hmm. rises too. So it's sort of like a double whammy. Yeah. Um, now, what um, 
what are people saying about how the ECB will manage this or, or are they? Because the ECB now has this urgent need to try and manage inflation too. Yeah, well, I mean, it is, it's extremely interesting because obviously this is, this is of enormous importance. Um, and, and so people are hanging on every word from the ECB and, and sort of you, in a way you might think, well, for something so important, there should be, you know, forward clarity on how it's going to evolve. But of course, that's impossible because the mm. ECB, like any central bank, has to react to changing uh, economic conditions and market conditions. And, and um, you know, it's, they just can't say exactly what's going to happen. So expectations are, though, that the that net purchasing by the ECB under the pandemic emergency purchase program will end in March. That means that that program won't be buying uh won't be increasing its holdings of debt. It, it, it can uh, keep rolling over, maturing bonds and, and spending that money on um, on new bonds. Um, but 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 they've said it's going to end. Now the the asset purchase program, which is the the sort of permanent program, um, is is also expected to stop buying net bonds before long. Perhaps in June, and and these would be the prelude to possible interest rate rises of about twenty five basis points in both September and December. Now, and, and that's the sort of base case the market expects now. Um, but what what nobody knows is just how um, damaging that that would be for the spreads mm. of of the peripheral governments. It's, it's I suppose what they could do is if you can reinvest. Uh, redemptions under the pandemic program, then you you simply reinvest those in as much uh, as in as many Greek government bonds as possible, and then um, you know sort of reallocate your balance of uh, country buying over to the to the other more permanent programs. Yes, it's true that the ECB can, uh, or theoretically, people think it might be able to reallocate uh, the, the 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 money it gets from maturing bonds specifically to the sovereigns that are. In, in more distress, although that you know any such move by the ECB is politically difficult, and you know that they often encounter legal challenges in Germany and things, but the um, the problem is that even if they can do all of that, the net amount of of periphery bonds they can buy this year is going to be less than a third of what they bought last year. So th- th- there's an enormous decline in the support they're they're putting into the government bond market yeah which is you know uh comes following like i say um after a year or two of elevated borrowing um so it's 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 making an enlarged debt pile more expensive to refinance um you wonder how governments are going to get out of that now uh one thing i thought was uh interesting was the sort of sentiment that our reporter Mike Turner uncovered Mm -hmm. in the government bond market about this Um, there's no doubt that it's you know got everyone's attention and yet you could almost say this seems like a sort of something of a mood of complacency uh, among a lot of people that um, perhaps because it's a a problem of such enormity (laughs) (laughs) no one knows quite how to fix it that uh, you might as well just see what happens Um, I guess people are sort of expecting the ECB to just figure it out or yeah. uh, to just keep rolling over. And in a sense, I suppose maybe that that is a fair attitude because they always have done before, isn't it? But this is an unprecedented set of circumstances for the ECB. It's never had inflation at all, let alone like this. That's right. Well, well, yeah, certainly. And and the the, the ironic thing is, 
we've got this we've got this big economic problem which is being caused really by by economic recovery and you know the it, it's that which is driving inflation um as well as things like uh the, the shortage of energy which mm. you know is is difficult is sort of outside the scope of economic management in a way it's come mm. you know it, it's caused by other things such as the behavior of president putin but the um ECB has got to got to manage this this new type of problem, uh, which which like the last one, which was caused by essentially recession and and you know very weak economies, uh, calls into question how it can sort of handle the governance of of Europe's financial system when which, which is b- belongs to multiple countries and when the ECB mm. is not a political actor, um, but but this sort of techni- technical body. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's 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 got um all of capital markets hooked on its uh, on its bond buying, and and it now has yeah. to um step away yeah. from that. It's uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's and it's, and no one's really tackled that before. I guess since uh, QE first happened after the uh, two thousand eight financial crisis, um, I guess they dealt with it a bit more effectively in the US, but certainly in Europe, uh, no one's ever quite figured out how you're supposed to get out of this mess. Yeah, and 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 of course, it, it is diff- It's not something you can theorize about, really. Mm. We just have to wait and see if institutional investors will come back and soak up all this, all this um, Italian and and other, you know, other sovereign debt. Um, an interesting angle to it is that um, you know, if to the extent that um, institutions don't come in, people think that ultimately domestic banks in each country are going to have to soak up these bonds. And, you know, there was a lot of rather pious um, sort of uh, head shaking during the last decade about how awful it was this, um, you know, all all the banks in each country own too many of their government's bonds. Um, And I always thought that was... Exactly. And and people said, oh, this isn't right. You know, this is this is just makes things worse for these countries. And, you know, it means that when the when the sovereigns in financial trouble, so are the banks. But but, you know, who is to be the responsible buyer? And, um, Mm. you know, I I think, um, you know, it's it's important that that that, um, sort of safety net for governments shouldn't be taken away. No, no, absolutely. Well, maybe, maybe the uh, maybe governments that can't will have to start a uh, a Sukuk program like Turkey. <laughs> um, I mean, mm. moving though, I mean, moving though from a market where it's you know it's been easy, frankly, to do deals over the last few years because of that support to where it's going to be harder. We um, we should also turn our attention to a market where it's been very difficult of late to get deals done, but um, there's perhaps a sign of what's required now to to get something something issued and that's the ipo market so companies listing their shares for the first time um john let's just set the scene we had a we had a couple of uh, well we had an abnormally high number of failures didn't we at the very start yeah. of the year in this market i mean it was an absolutely terrible market uh so far this year the the ipo market has is seasonal you know it has it usually has a patch of activity in the spring before easter another one in the summer before summer holidays and then one in the autumn and and you know the it's not often that the first first session is terrible but it but it was this year and and lots of the most important deals that people were hoping um would sort of get the market going 
actually had to be withdrawn. Um, and, you know, it was a very it made the market look extremely oversensitive because, um, of, of course, you know, the economy is recovering. Um, you know, things should be things should be going well um, for companies generally. Um, but but it, it, investors have been sort of bashed about by uh, the big rotation, as it's called, out of technology stocks, which they all flocked into during the pandemic and back into sort of more normal, broader economy, cyclical stocks that, that they expect to do well in the recovery. Mm. But actually, even then, I think one of the emblematic um, IPO failures this year was was for a Spanish bank. Now, financials yeah. are exactly those sorts of yeah. stocks that you would think would do well in this kind of economy, you know, where the rates are going up. Um, but there was a Spanish bank, Ibacaja, that uh, yeah. tried to bring an IPO that, that failed. So that really, really did tell you that either they got the price spectacularly wrong or um, that, that things are much, much worse than they think. Um, but this this week there have been two IPOs done. Um, one for Technoprobe, uh, which isn't quite as much of a tech IPO as it might at first sound, um, and uh, at least not in the sense that uh, we were talking about for popular companies during the pandemic. Um, and one for um, VAR Energy, so an oil and gas IPO, which uh, keen listeners of the podcast will remember we tipped as a sector to uh, have a spectacular yeah. market. Uh, sorry, a spectacular time in the equity capital markets this year, uh, despite the uh, recent um, gains uh, made by the uh, ESG camp. Um, now, um, Technoprobe, it makes semiconductors, John. So um, perhaps you can, uh, can you explain a little bit about why that was popular? Yeah, I well, guess we'll come to why these deals are triumphing and what that means for other companies. Well, I think uh, Technoprobe, it, yeah, it's a semiconductor company uh, and, and there's actually been a chip shortage uh, so bad that it has, um, you know, uh, constrained supply of cars in in some parts of the economy. So, uh, I think um, you know th- that was that was a the sort of right kind of deal for for the current conditions. Var Energy, uh, which is a Norwegian company, um, which is basically taking uh, some some oil assets from Eni, the Italian um, oil and gas major. Um, and and that's really part of the sort of energy transition. Any is um, sh- sort of de-emphasizing oil and trying to invest in some, you know, more clean energy. Mm. But to do that, it needs obviously to sell the oil assets to somebody else. And so this was a pure sort of oil and gas play, uh, and and it really timed to perfection because of the incredibly strongly rising uh, oil and gas prices at the moment. Yeah, exactly. So again, like you said, you know, perhaps uh, the conflict with Russia um, and also yeah. the uh, economic recovery, uh, which has happened at such a pace since the pandemic, played into that um, far more than people's concerns about uh, about ESG and the environment and so on. So, Ralph, what what do you think we can learn from these deals about what you know what kind of IPOs actually work at the moment? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, and this is what people told our reporter, Victoria Teela, uh, during the week was that firstly, you know, obviously price is important. Um, you always obviously need to offer a decent enough discount. Um, it's notable that for all the successes there were this week or the two or four successes there were this week, those deals priced at the cheapest end of the range. Uh, so the issuers were not getting the maximum valuation they hoped, mm. but they were pragmatic enough to take that. Um, 
then there were the sort of the characteristics uh, of the companies, which I, people in the equity market, capital markets told us was important. Um, they named three ingredients for success. And the first was a flawless equity story. So, mm. you know, no, no, uh, no skeletons hidden in the accounting cupboard and such, and uh, a story, I guess, of growth and a good quality company with good quality earnings. Um, and then they also mentioned that the deal needed to be secured as much as possible at launch. Now, by that, they mean they want to see anchor investors and cornerstone investors in the order book before it's officially open to everyone else. Um, those anchor orders and cornerstone investors are people that commit to buying a large chunk of the deal at the outset. So they are sort of they're, they're showing effectively confidence in the company but also importantly they're constraining the supply of shares that will be available in the aftermarket so it creates scarcity around the shares and keeps the price high mm. um, and then the third point they raised was about having enough liquidity in the stock such that um, investors who buy it have some sort of confidence that they can get out of it afterwards yeah. if they don't want it yeah and that was a, a point in technoprobe's favor it actually did uh, um extremely well when it began trading and the stock went up 18 percent that's actually mm. more than is normal in europe um yeah. and people put that down partly to well it was it was priced quite cheaply but it but also it's it's quite liquid it's quite a big deal and for mid-cap um ipos that's unusual so um it uh you know that that helped it but i think what um really this this is showing is is a great relief for the for the equity market because um, after after this terrible first call, first you know month and a half when it looked like the IPO calendar might might collapse altogether, um, they have managed to get some major deals done, and and th and that's that that proves that you can do deals if they meet the conditions you were talking about. Um, so the question for the market now is what 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 to do next? Um, do they bring forward uh, deals? Yeah, yeah. Well, no, that is absolutely interesting, um, and you would think having taken that evidence from this week, like sellers of IPOs, so banks and companies, would have a good idea of what will work and mm -hmm. what won't. Because what we saw last year was we saw banks and companies bringing deals to the market, like just regardless, and just trying to stuff investors with everything they could. And there were a lot, a lot, of, a lot of business got done, but there were a lot of failures too. So I, I'd also be interested to know if um, those sellers will interpret this week as a sign to proceed with caution and care mm. um, and tailoring uh, the products to what people actually want to buy? Or are they just going to go hog wild and try and get everything done? Um, <laughs> <laughs> a couple of successes, get some fees through the door. No, I, th I think I think it'll be caution. I, I, I really do. Yeah. Because, I mean, one one thing about the, the IPO market is, I mean, you, you can think about it as, I mean, every every single company is different, right? And the, and the equity story and the sort of whether it's a good deal to invest in are are completely individual. But at the same time, it is uh, it is a market, and and the the investors in particular are a community and quite a small one. And if they get burnt on on a bad deal or two, they they definitely get in a huff and become much mm -hmm. more um, reluctant with other deals. So the banks really. Uh, are quite incentivized to bring deals carefully and and bring deals that will work. It's a peculiar thing, isn't it? This is these are companies that are bringing themselves to the public market where anyone can buy shares, and yet there are these sort of 
gatekeeper institutional yeah. investors that anyway they're acting in their own self-interest let's let's not be be foolish but um they they have a, a governing role and sort of what ends up in public hands uh when the wider public probably aren't in as fit a position to judge yeah well that is a a deep uh, deep story for another time perhaps indeed indeed yeah possibly a whole series on its own mm. yeah Anyway, as we spoke about earlier, we spoke to Hannah Buttle this week about a landmark case for sex discrimination that could have profound implications for pay transparency in the City of London. Hi, Hannah. Thanks for joining us. Can you give us a brief summary of the Stacey Macken case and what it was about? Sure. So Stacey Macken was a vice president in the prime brokerage department at BNP Paribas. She claimed that she had been a victim of sexual discrimination, both in terms of behaviour towards her, but also in that she received a lower salary and bonus compared to a male colleague. And um, do you have any examples of, what the, of the sort of sexual discrimination that she, she claimed to be suffering? Yes. One of the incidents that's relayed as part of the tribunal hearing is that she had a witch's hat left on her desk, which the court decided was probably left by another colleague. And this was seen as an act of sexual discrimination. And in terms of the money, um, what was the difference between what she was paid and what her colleagues were paid? So, for example, in 2014, she received a bonus of £10,000, whereas her colleague, who was in an equivalent role, received £50,000. And that continued the following year and in 2016. So she took them to court? Yes, she took them to an employment tribunal, which found in 2019 that she was subject to sex discrimination. It ruled in her favour. The tribunal recently decided on the remedy for this sexual discrimination. Macken was awarded more than £2 million in compensation. Also, BNP Pariba will have to conduct an equal pay audit by June of this year. What does that mean exactly? What's, uh, What's an equal pay audit? So it's a bit different to the gender pay gap reporting, which all UK companies above 250 employees have had to do for the last few years. Yeah, that's right. So the, the gender pay gap reporting that's that's mandatory is, is quite simple and standardised for all companies. Uh, and what it requires is each company has to publish certain metrics, which are the mean and median pay for both men and women, and the mean and median bonus, if the, if there is a bonus, and also to say what percentage of, of male and female staff get paid bonuses. And then they also have to divide all their staff into quartiles uh, in according to how much they're paid, and then report for each quartile what percentage are men and what percentage women. And so what is, uh, what is BNP Paribas having to do that's, that's different from that? An equal pay audit is much more granular and detailed than the gender pay gap reporting. You'll be looking at like-for-like work, so people in very similar roles, and is there some kind of gender pay gap between the men and women doing similar roles? But you will also have to look at work that is deemed equal value, so it brings in an equal amount of value to your company. And 
that could be, for example, in the case of the ASDA employment discrimination case, they found that although shopkeepers and people working in the warehouses were doing very different jobs, they brought in the same amount of value. And as a result, they were able to mount an equal pay claim because the majority female shopkeepers were not being paid as much as the majority male warehouse workers. So has any other company had to do what BNP Paribas are being asked to do so far? No other company has been ordered by an employment tribunal in the UK to conduct this equal pay audit. Equal pay audits have been conducted voluntarily by other companies, but this is the first case where the tribunal has ruled that BNP Paribas has had to conduct this audit. This seems like a huge moment for uh, the investment banking industry. Um, one of the big taboos in the industry is pay transparency. Um, it's obviously important, uh, an important judgment for um, female employees in the business, although not the first, it should be said, you know, this, these, these cases come up from time to time. Um, but for the wider uh, investment banking industry, a bank having to provide this kind of data on its pay, that's, that's quite, a, quite a big deal, John, don't you think? Yes. Well, I mean, it would be interesting to see how how detailed it is and how public it is as well. But but you, you can be sure that uh, BNP Paribas employees will look carefully at, at whatever is produced. Um, and, and, you know, if it's possible to identify their own unit or or team, uh, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll be keen to do that or to work out at least if it's more general bands, which, which band they belong to. But um, I suppose the the uh, sort of sharpest thing about it might be if they do discover um, discrepancies, mightn't it, Hannah? Yes, it looks as though BNP Paribas might have to show that it's taking steps to address any discrepancies that it finds as part of the audit. Either way, it looks likely that any of their employees will also be able to look at where they fall in terms of their pay and perhaps ask for that to be changed as well. How granular is this detail going to be? Um, I remember uh, back in ancient history, there was a, a, a case, you know, much celebrated in some parts of the capital markets where uh, BNP Paribas uh, was taken to a tribunal by a female employee who uh, claimed similar, she won. Um, and I guess as a result of the tribunal, individual bankers' incomes were made public um, which, of course, generated great interest in um, this newspaper's coverage <laughs> of that story. Um, I don't think, you know, I, I'm guessing the result of this tribunal is not that everyone at BNP Paribas uh, in London will have their salary and bonus um, put up on the billboard on Piccadilly Circus. Uh, but obviously, there will be a greater degree of granularity than is provided in uh, gender pay gap reporting. Um how do we how how do we know how the or do we know what the information will look like when it's presented? What we do know is that the equal pay audit will cover all of BMP Paribas London branches employees, and that's over three thousand seven hundred employees. Whether that will be made public and how much of the information will be made public, I think that does remain to be seen. However. The employment judge has said that she doesn't expect any kind of identifying information for the employees in the report and that the 
amount of information that they will need will be anonymized. So I would be surprised if any salaries for individual people would make it into the public domain. That being said, if we do see perhaps the salary levels within certain departments, that could be quite a big problem if other rival banks want to maybe tempt employees away, for example. Which which we understand certainly at the junior levels has happened quite a bit there um, over the last last year or so. Um, it's an interesting sweep of data because if it's everyone at the branch, I mean, have they just limited it to front office staff or are they encompassing the back office? Um, will it be the security guards in the building, the canteen staff? I mean, this is, this is going to encompass a huge range of pay, jobs, responsibilities and seniority. Yes, it will cover all of BNP Paribas London branches employees who were employed in the year 2021. What's interesting is that it will also cover bonus pay on top of base pay. Well, that's that's I guess that is particularly why I think it's uh, it's interesting. Um, not only has um, you know discussing pay between staff been something of a, I mean, obviously it happens, but um, officially it doesn't. But that sort of lack of transparency within a bank uh, about who gets paid what. Um, after all, it's not like working in the public sector where you work in specific salary bands. Um, the the typical front office bonus and indeed bonuses across the bank are always described as discretionary. Um, now, I think we know from, from previous cases that discretionary doesn't mean you can just award someone zero because you feel like it, but the, the criteria are perhaps deliberately opaque. Um, and I suppose that allows banks to pay less when they need to and, and more when they need to. Um, it'll be interesting to see what this this audit reveals about that sort of practice. Definitely. So Suzanne McKee, who was one of the lawyers that I spoke to on this topic, said that in the city, bonuses have actually moved to a more opaque structure. Whereas before, you might have your bonus based on, say, your commission, you now are much more likely to have it be based on quite an obscure and possibly subjective set of criteria. Hmm. And this is all coming at a time uh, when pay, especially among the junior ranks as, um, of investment banking, has been been soaring. So uh, I guess if there's been a hiring spree going on across the street, which is something we've discussed on the podcast before, um, it's quite likely that there will be sort of individuals that have been hired um, at much higher pay than peers, perhaps, because that's you know, you're in a time of sort of volatile, volatile pay. So it'll be quite interesting to see what what numbers this audit reveals. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always been a thing uh, in in banking to be able to, you know, have a degree of flexibility and and hire, you know, reward talent, hire stars if you if you feel that it's useful to the business, and it could get much more difficult if um, bonus structures have to be uh you know analyzed publicly and sort of rigorously compared with each other and and sort of equalized according to criteria so what does this mean for the rest of the street does does the rest of the investment banking industry have something to fear from this will they have to produce audits of their own um or is this actually just a, 
a very valuable set of data for BNP Paribas rivals? It might feel like something to fear, but banks can also do an equal pay audit voluntarily, and then they, in most circumstances, wouldn't be required to disclose that publicly. So you don't have to wait until the tribunal tells you to, to conduct an equal pay audit. And that means you can really get a handle on any discrepancies at your organisation before they become a problem. Yeah, so in fact, that sort of transparency is a good way to avoid having to provide that transparency publicly, I guess, and uh, to avoid embarrassing tribunals. Exactly. And I think people more generally are becoming more comfortable discussing their salaries with other employees. So even if a bank doesn't get a handle on its pay gaps internally, there's a chance that employees might become sort of more empowered to correct that themselves. Hmm. I think I think among um, I suppose groups of friends or close colleagues in banks, I don't think there's ever been um, a lack of discussion about relative pay and what each other earns. But I think it's interesting that this might widen out that conversation uh, beyond just um, you know one's immediate circle, to, so that you can uh, compare yourself to your peers within a within a bank? Absolutely. A poll by Servation a few years ago found that younger people are more likely to discuss their salary with colleagues. And also, broadly speaking, people are more likely to discuss their salary with colleagues if that colleague feels they might be a victim of discrimination in some way. So uh, where do where do you think this leaves the industry? After all, uh, it's still one with, with, with quite a serious uh, gender pay imbalance, isn't it, Hannah? Definitely. In terms of the banks that we looked at, which was the UK's kind of major banks that might be involved in investment banking, we found that for most of these banks, women on average were earning 80 pence for every one pound a male colleague would earn. And that was in terms of their base pay. In terms of the bonus pay, that figure was even worse. So women on average in most of these banks would be earning 50 pence or lower for each pound a man earned as part of his bonus pay. Well, a big moment approaching for BNP Paribas, or at least certainly its HR department in the short term, um, but possibly also for managers, lawyers, and its bankers beyond that. And and perhaps more widely, uh, the rest of the street as uh, transparency over pay and gender equality over pay uh, becomes an ever bigger topic. So it only remains for me to thank uh, John and Hannah for joining me for the podcast and Gerald, our producer, for stitching it all together. Um, and to encourage you to get in touch with us if you've got anything to say about this week's topic uh, or you want to tell us how much you earn or how much you think you should earn, just email podcasts at globalcapital.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you liked it. Uh, just search for Global Capital on any podcast provider and you'll find us there. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening and we'll be back with more from the capital markets next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.